0: Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. On episode 22, I sat down with Ryan Banta. Coach Banta covers a lot of ground in our two-part conversation. In part one, we focus on the critical mass system and how he stacks training to successfully prep athletes. We also look at the different needs of the sprint events and the 800. Coach Banta does a great job outlining everything that his system is about giving an understanding to how he builds balanced, well-rounded, and capable track athletes. This is a great conversation, so without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to episode 22 of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with head coach, track and field, author, and recently added podcaster, Coach Ryan Banta. How you doing, Coach?
1: Dude, I'm doing great, man.
0: I'm looking forward to our conversation, and thanks for letting me come on and share, man. Absolutely. Uh, whenever I started this podcast, you were kind of one of the first people I penciled down. I wanted to get you on. Uh, I've read through your book. Your book's great. Well, I'm sure a lot of the topics we're going to cover are going to be based around a lot of the things that uh, viewers could could find in that a book. It's got tons of resources, not only from yourself, but from others as well. It's just a great overall perspective on sprinting and track and field. Uh, and also every week, you know, shout out, I listen to your podcast, you have quality guests on and even whenever you're kind of doing your own thing, answering questions or just giving your quick thoughts, I always love to pop it on whenever I go for a drive. Uh, I've read tons of articles from you. You know, we're going to focus on critical mass system today. We're going to look at the differing sprints. We're going to look at mid-distance. We have a lot of great topics. You've wrote a great article on tempo, and you've had some really good podcasts on tempo, so that's obviously naturally going to be in there. But uh, one of the things that's always kind of stood out to me about you, Coach, is whenever I've listened to you on prior podcasts, how that you adapt and you find ways to stay flexible and to keep your kids healthy and working through all the different types of circumstances that we all know you can encounter in an athletic setting. So that's one thing that I've always kind of earmarked about you, the way that you can, Uh, work with people, rehab with people and keep them active because a lot of the times people go by the wayside whenever they have small little nagging injuries or things and you kind of spoke to how you had an injury riddled uh, athletic career so that probably pushed you towards some of that. So we're going to look at some of that today. So a lot of great topics but before we dive into the specifics I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and then we'll get rolling.
1: Yeah man well uh, Parkway Central graduate where I coach uh graduated from Carthage College always been a frustrated sprinter as you mentioned because of my injuries had a lot of success early and when I say success I'm talking about like grade level youth youth type of stuff and I mean I'm a 90s kid so we're talking late 80s early 90s this is a long time ago this is before the internet was a thing and people were snapchatting and doing tiktoks and And all this kind of stuff. So I feel like in many respects, I'm kind of on the last train out of the old school in many regards, Um, but at the same time, not the negative aspects of what I think is the old school, but more of the endearing ones of having structure and, and having some sort of principles and guidelines to your programs and having expectations for your athletes and and making sure that they meet those expectations so that they can succeed, you know, and one of the things that, uh you know, Jocko Willink talks about all the time is that, you know, discipline equals freedom. And it's one of those things where I feel like that's what we want to have for our athletes as well, you know, and I think we've accomplished that and we've done that. I've been coaching at Parkway Central for now, this will be my eight, in my 18th season going into my 19th season. So it's been a couple of decades um, being at Parkway Central High School. And it's really cool to coach at my alma mater. And one of the things that used to kind of frustrate me is that I always felt like there were female athletes in the building because I was, little did I know it, but I was kind of a coach before I was a coach. And I was always trying to recruit the best boys out of the high school to be a part of my program. And I didn't care if they beat me or or whooped me in an event at all. I felt like that was just gonna make our team better and make our team more successful and that we would all get success together versus trying to be a scarcity mindset type of person so I was recruiting throwers and sprinters and one of the guys I recruited was a guy by the name of Duran Davis who ended up having our state record in the 400 meter dash and you know here's a guy that's vastly superior to me um, especially because he didn't get hurt and I did all the time and so looking at that from the female perspective I wanted, you know, my female friends to come out and be a part of the track team because I just had that much pride in my school. When I was a high school kid, I had a cork board wall and I would have on my wall that was in my room with this cork board, I had articles pinned up from all of my classmates and teammates and kids who went to high school with me because I had that much pride, not only in my peer group, but my school. And so when I became the girls track coach, that's something that I wanted to provide for those female athletes. Now, full disclosure, I had no idea how to get that done right out of the gate. And I had to take some lumps after my first season, figure out that, oh, I really didn't know a lot. And my what I thought were hard and fast truths ended up getting radically um, adjusted or slapped in the mouth, so to speak, in terms of this is not Reality. You think that this is. You think that this is how things are done. But I'm going to show you. I'm going to humble you. And what I mean by I, I mean God or or the world or the universe, and make you realize you're not as smart as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. And and what kind of was unfortunate is my first season, we were super successful. So that was even a bigger shock when we didn't replicate that success for about three to four years after. Um, And it it took a lot of come to Jesus meetings with my assistant coaches and me really kind of reinvesting in programming and coaching design to make us successful. And as we talk coach, of course, we're going to have a lot more discussions about that. Um, So I'll leave some of that for the remainder of this conversation, but it wasn't one evolution. And I think that's one of the things that coaches need to take home from this conversation is as we grow, we evolve over and over and over. And some of those things are evolutions that we create, And some are situational and some are our friendships and relationships.
0: Yeah, those are all good things. Like a couple of things standing out to me before we jump into specifics, like you talked about, I do like the idea of you talking about discipline within a program, because Whenever you're dealing with adolescents and teenagers, it's sometimes expected that they would understand what it means to be disciplined and to, to pursue something and and to stay at it. That's not just a, a trait that just naturally is going to be built into you mo- for most individuals. So I think sports is such a great area to teach people discipline. Uh, our kids work out pretty early. It's not it's not the perfect time, but it, it's discipline because they have to show up, they have to invest in each other and, and work together. So I can also speak to the discipline thing. That's, that's one of the greatest things. Things about high school sports. It teaches you to be disciplined, teaches you to pursue things and, and to work with others. You're talking about track and field, like it's funny you were in high school, but recruiting people. I think one we, thing we could say is Typically in track and field, you have to recruit anyways, you have to recruit the hallways because very few people think of themselves firstly as a track and field athlete. So I think that's a really important paradigm within track and field to begin with, especially at the high school level, you have to find those kids and give them something to buy into something that they enjoy. Uh, And a lot of times I feel like perhaps kids are miscast where they're put in track and field and finding that right fit for kids is something that kind of stands out to me there. And then lastly, talking about evolution. I can speak to that as well. It's kind of funny, you are your alma mater, I am too. Uh, It's funny how you find your way back to where you started. But, you know, for years, we were very successful. Uh, We had a couple of semifinal runs, but we would always get axed right there before the championship. And then we finally made it to the championship and we didn't perform. And then this last year, we were finally able to get over that hump again after several years away from winning a championship. And those years were the years that I grew the most because each and every single year, I found one to two things that needed to be reworked and changed. And a lot of the times in that moment, it feels terrible. But those are where you grow. It's like you, you spoke to. That's kind of why I started a podcast so I can and talk to people like you and other individuals and learn uh, together. And th- those are the areas of growth that you encounter. Your successes come from your failures earlier. Anybody that's been in the coaching game for long enough can speak to that as well.
1: Yeah. And I, and I yeah. feel like podcasting in general, it's a very intentional conversation, right? Like I'm not spending time looking at my phone, checking my notifications, you know, and doing those things that we kind of sometimes rudely do to some of the people closest to us. You know, I spend you know, admittedly a lot of time on the phone just because of having a social media presence and having a podcast. But the benefit of that is that you have this connectivity to a wider community. Like you mentioned, we talked before we recorded here with a mutual friend of ours that we probably wouldn't even been friends with if it wasn't for this type of situation of sitting down and having these intentional conversations to force ourselves to be better. And that's one of the things like, to even piggyback off of what you're saying that I think is so important one of the greatest pieces of advice that I've ever been given wasn't even really directly a piece of advice it was just a casual conversation from Aeneas Williams you know Hall of Famer Aeneas Williams his sons and daughters were in parkway for different portions of of their academic you know time and he made mention that every athlete that was a hall of famer or all pro in his position he called up reached out to and said hey can i buy you a cup of coffee can i buy you lunch and can we talk about some stuff and first of all to humble yourself like that and to be also confident enough to to reach out to those people and not be afraid to be told no but then all the things that you're going to learn from that and i think that that's so very important and it's i think it's really important to have these conversations coach curtis with with people that aren't totally like-minded And But they are successful and figure out like, okay, in the nuances of what they do, why is this thing so alien? But how did they maybe circumvent, create bridges to solve the problems that I think maybe their system or ideas might create? And then is there some wisdom, which there usually is, in their system or their choices that will make me a better coach and evolve? And like you said, man, winning hides a lot of evils and hides a lot of problems. Losing or getting beaten really is the best teacher, you know, and like I said, man, I, my first year we were so good. I was like, yep, yep. I know everything. Look how great I am. I, I knew it, you know, all I needed to do is take over the team and we're going to be super successful. And then four years later, I was like, oh my God, you know, those kids were really talented in spite of me. I've got to really go back to the drawing board and figure some stuff out
0: yeah and like just before we jump into our next talking point like coach jt years i'm having on a couple episodes he's referenced that multiple times offered to go buy somebody coffee sit down with him you'd be surprised how many people would be willing to and if they are not well then it just wasn't meant to happen. But I've heard him reference that multiple times, and that's why I like Coach JT so much. He loves to have conversations. He loves to get around and talk to different people because that's how you grow. So with with me talking to you naturally, we have to talk a little bit about the critical mass system. So I want to get the specifics behind the critical mass system, so an explanation of kind of the rationale behind it. And then also I want to go ahead and start focusing on the sprints here. So how does prep differ for you between the 100, the 200, and the 400? events.
1: Yeah, sure, coach. So to address the critical mass system, one of the biggest criticisms that people have put out there is that it's complex. Well, it's not complex. It It is complex maybe in comparison to some other systems, but I would argue that's not true either. So I think one of the things, and I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about it, is to kind of clarify like well, how does the system really work? What, what is the key tenets or key principles to give people a scaffolding or a skeleton, if you will, to be able to understand how to use the system? So the biggest thing is, is that I believe that you need to have workouts that are based around acceleration, maximum velocity, speed endurance, also known as speed reserve or speed maintenance, special endurance, tempo. And then from that, then you have some ancillary things that help solve some of those riddles for you, which is a focus on biomechanics every day, plyometrics, strength training, okay, and then preventative measures that also can sometimes be misconstrued as rehab, but we would like to prehab. So you've got those modalities outside of the running workout. So you've got five running type of workouts that you need to spread over the course of two weeks. Okay. So you have two weeks to get those five type of workouts done. And then within those two weeks, you likely have one to two competitions as well that also take up a day. So now in addition to that, you're going to have an active recovery day each week as well. So now we've got seven days that are taken care of where you're not going to have to replicate or repeat. So that's number one. Number two is that you have to have a system that forces adaptation which means we're not going to be doing the same exact thing for a three-month period every three to six weeks we are going to change slightly those modalities not the keep; they're still you're still going to apply metrics you're still going to have weight room you're still going to have all those five running workouts and active recovery days but then what takes place is done with a twist. So there's slight adjustments. Well, how do you adjust things? You can make them more complex in terms of neurological demands. You can make them faster. You can add load. You can increase density. You can increase um, proprioceptive, you know, activities. So there's all these things that you can adjust to make those things better. And and the other thing that's a key tenant is that we want to be doing things frequently in most of those workouts I mentioned at the intensity levels that a person would see strategically or intensity wise in their competition. And then we also want to make sure that we are running in practice or sprinting in practice because we're talking about specifically sprinters near the race distances just below and just above. So the whole point is, is we're wanting to do the things that look like what the athlete is going to see in competition while respecting acceleration, max velocity, speed maintenance, special endurance, tempo, and then the ancillary stuff of plyometrics, weight room, strength training, obviously, and then prehab, rehab, recovery type stuff. So those things need to be present over the course of two weeks. So, now you've got two weeks that are set up to do this. Week one, you're going to have a workout that is going to focus on more of the explosive intensity, shorter aspects of the sport. Monday, week one. Monday, week two, you're going to have the more enduring, lengthy, longer pursuits on Monday of week two. So, now Mondays are balanced. Tuesday, I believe I don't want to give up a day of training. So I don't go hard, easy. I go hard, easy, medium, high intensity, middle intensity, high intensity off. So again, Monday, intense, no matter you're going long or short. Tuesday, tempo. Wednesday, active recovery. Thursday, is going to be the opposite of what you do on that Monday traditionally. It's going to be the opposite. Then Friday is going to be Pavlov day, which is kind of stimulating, getting the body to salivate, to get it ready, but to not fatigue it. Then Saturday is either a race model to simulate competition or you're racing. And then Sunday's off. So Wednesday and Sunday are basically very minimal activity. If anything, Saturdays are very intense Mondays are very intense. Tuesdays are moderate. Wednesdays are low. Thursdays are intense, depending on what you're doing. Fridays are pretty low, but stimulative, you know, and Saturdays are intense. So you have within the weeks up and down days, but I don't have a high low because then you lose an additional day of training. So that's a big part of it. Then the, the other part of how you lay it out throughout the week is then I will flip-flop the emphasis Monday, Thursday, and then I do the reverse the next week. So like I told you, Monday week one, short, intense, powerful. Monday week two, more long, more lengthy, but also really, really fast, but more on the long side. So then Thursday of week one would be more long, intensive type stuff. Thursday of week two would be short, acceleration, maximum velocity. So what happens is you're balancing out both weeks, rotating the emphasis on those two particular days, Monday and Thursday. And then what that creates is impulse through the microcycle as well, where week to week you have a kind of an emphasis for three days that then gets de-emphasized for the next three major workouts. And what I believe in is creating a balanced global athlete within the events that they're going to compete. So like, I'm not going to train a sprinter with workouts that look like miler workouts, but I am going to train them with workouts that look like a hundred meter dash athlete and workouts that look like a 400 meter dash athlete and respect the fact that my athletes are probably going to have to do all of those in a high school season. Just like a football player should be doing tactical things, but also should be doing things that are fitness-related to football. So we don't need to go out and run repeat miles as football players, but you probably need a day where you have like what McCaffrey was doing with Kula, where they're doing the repeat reps at routes, route, 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 catch, drop the ball, back, route, route, route. And you're pretending that you're marching down the field and running a series so that when the athlete faces that, they, can, they know what that's like and they could tolerate it and be successful in the pursuit. And so I think that what people get confused about with the critical mass system is some super complex thing when in reality, it's like, what's the parameter of your sport? What does your sport require? And then how do you create an athlete that can tolerate all aspects that they're going to have thrown at them within the sport? So for me, as a track and field coach, I've got to get my athlete ready to run the 100 to the 400. And then not only do I have to get them ready to do that, I probably need to get them ready to run up to six reps extraordinarily fast in practice. Does that mean that in competition, they're always going to run six races? No, but at districts, they have prelims and finals. So we have to be prepared for that at state. We have back-to-back days. They need to be prepared for that. Do I have to do that all the time in practice? No, I don't. But sometimes the meets and the competition take care of it, but if they don't, then I have to take care of it in practice. So it's just solving the natural problems to present your athlete, the situations that they're going to face to make them the very best at the things they're actually going to do. And you can go farther than that and you can go shorter than that as well, but I don't want to do that all at once. I want to do that progressively. And we can k- get into how I do that, but I, we want to progress that. So it's real simple. It's like, okay, you got these five types of workouts. You got 14 days. Here are the things you do on the two weeks. Here are the impulses. And then you have things you have to also take care of that are ancillary that help the athlete get better for the sport, but are not necessarily at you know, the sport itself. So like weightlifting is non-specific to track and field, but it helps with the block start, right? It helps make the athlete a more robust, strong athlete. It improves their skeletal system. So these are things that I try to do as a coach. Now, somebody might say, Hey, all I do on day one is I run this. And then on day two, I send the kids home on day three, I do this. And then the day four, I send the kids home. And on day, day six, we race or whatever. That's fine. That's real simple, but that doesn't honor all of the things that are being done in the sport that you need to work on to improve, to make your athletes the best that they can be. So I know that's a, a pretty long winded answer on the critical mass also through the lens of sprinting. So to follow up coach, what are some of the things you're looking for specifically to the different events? Well, let's, what let's talk a
0: little, at? let's talk a little bit about volume first, like for sure. some of those different, uh different parameters you were talking about, talking about the uh, five different parameters there. So let's talk about kind of like how we would attempt to build volume in a, uh, in a manner that would allow you to shift amongst those different things that we talked about there. So obviously you said like, it's kind of rotating there. So let's talk about like a Monday. You said like a Monday would typically be hard. We're in week one. What would typically your, let's take a hundred meter sprinter there. What would your typical volume with rest to work ratio uh, be on those uh, type of hard days for like a hundred meter sprinter?
1: Perfect. Okay. So if I'm doing acceleration and I'm doing max velocity, if a sprinter has to run minimum of four races in a track meet now, some people are like, Oh my God, that's so many. Okay. That's fine. But you still have to warm up and cool down. And I know some people say they don't warm up and they don't cool down. That's to in my opinion tends to be a faulty notion. There has to be something else that they're doing to either circumvent that or mimic that. Okay. So, When we look at what we're doing, it's like, all right, you could probably start with four reps of something, right? Four all out accelerations, four all out maximum velocity sprint runs with flies or some kind of dynamic stereotype run where you're changing things and different barriers. So like 10 meters, we're running with high knees, 10 meters, we're going slow, 10 meters, we're running fast, sprinting out the back. You know, that's a type of workout that could also be possibly good for maximum velocity work as besides just a fly run. So you're going to do four of those. And then as the season moves along, you're probably going to open that up and expand it. One way you can expand it is on the length of those four runs, right? So you can go from a 20 meter acceleration all the way out to eventually probably doing something that looks like a 60. In a fly run, you probably can go from 10 and move it all the way out to something that looks like a 30, or like I just mentioned to you, once you get to 30 meters, as you move forward, maybe now we can change the task that is happening within the fly run to doing different things to overtly manipulate their mechanics. So saying, I want you to go with a... how can I say this, a stride length bias through this 10 meter zone or 20 meter zone. And on the next one, I want it to be a frequency bias or I want you to run with high knees or I want you to run with a straight leg mound. And so then you can manipulate it once they've mastered those skills. Now, work to rest ratios, very simple rule. It's a minute for every 10 meters of distance all the way up to what I don't go higher than 15 minutes recovery even if i'm running a 450 or a 350 or anything like that because that even though the science says one or the the good coaching anecdotal knowledge says one minute for every 10 meters of distance you go beyond 15 minutes it's going to be problematic in the window of time that you have to work with your athletes so my recoveries are one minute per 10 meters all the way up to 15 minutes once i get past 10 minutes Within those breaks, I will have a buildup session, so three to four buildups of 30 yards or accelerations, and sometimes then after they get comfortable with that, we'll do three to four over wickets, and so that's how my recoveries look. Now, that would be a short day. Now, one of the other things I like to do is once I feel really comfortable with the athletes being able to accelerate or maximum velocity run, then I want to squeeze those things together. So I want to do both in a session as opposed to parceling it out so much that it, it feels like we're not getting, and it's not about working hard, right? And we're going to get the grind, but it's like putting something together that's really useful to the sport, you know? And, and so that's how a Monday session that's short, that would be acceleration or max and velocity running would look like. Now, if I had a 100 meter sprinter and I'm talking about that second Monday that we already mentioned. The second Monday, I might come back and then run speed reserve, you know, speed maintenance or speed endurance. All three are synonymous with each other. The same stinking thing. Okay. I might run repeat 120s with a fly or 150s on that next Monday. So that's going a little bit longer, but our intensities are high, super high, 95% efforts with a race model. That might be built more for a 200 because you're going a little bit longer than a 100. Okay. But in addition to that, then we also have a recovery that matches it. So, a 150, you're going to get 15 minutes. For a 120, you're going to get 12 minutes. And so that way, what you've done there is you've balanced the over and under of a 100 meter sprinter. And again, I believe that to be the critical mass because you need them to be able to maintain the speed and you need the speed itself raw to get developed. And now you've created balance and you've reached the critical aspects of the 100 meter dash with the mass or the meters that match what you're probably going to need to deal with in competition, especially as the season moves along. So that would be an example of a Monday. Now, the other thing, though, Coach Curtis, we would follow up that Monday with a weight room session. Okay. And the reason why is I want or second our second or both, both days, both the, both Mondays will have a weight room and then we do it after. Now the reason why I do it after is I don't trust high school athletes to do the weight room stuff, right? Where it doesn't get fatiguing all the time and that it would just be stimulative or post activation potenation. Right? So I don't trust that my athletes can do that before a practice. And I remember as an athlete, our coach would have us run this or lift this crazy long circuit. And by the time I was done with the circuit in the weight room, then he would have us do a circuit outside on the track, and I was just gassed. And then they were expected to do these high-intensity runs. And that's not smart, and that's foolhardy. So when people hear this, yes, they might think it's geared towards this grind thing. And it is absolutely not. We're trying to place things properly. So weight room would always come after on both of those days, if you had enough time, you know,
0: a lot of great stuff there. I I really liked when you said how you could throw in these different kind of I would almost allude it to to a tempo because you said like high frequency and you said sometimes striding out and stuff. I love to do that with kids, like even not in a track setting, even working with my field sports, because I find where kids, you know, have difficulties in the toe off or they have difficulties in flight phase or different things and by kind of going through these different tempos I'm stimulating these these different areas and focusing more on them so that's that's a great way to recover and then also to kind of show the body things that they probably avoid in running that need to be worked on as well and it just gets them more rhythmic overall several guests that I've had on previous uh, the last couple podcasts we've talked about rhythm and running and building that Uh, obviously there's a lot of reflexive things going on there but there's nothing wrong with trying to build more rhythm coordination and other things especially in something like plyometrics and running so a couple of more points before we kind of delve into the 800, because I haven't focused a lot on the 800 with individuals. So I'd like to look at that with you. I want to look at how in-season training, how, how it would either be tapered or adjusted based on the comp. We're talking kind of more building up to the season I would assume right there where we're talking. And then I also want to talk about that endurance factor you talked again. I feel like you hit on a little bit, but let's talk about those special endurance days. You said that you're going to do it in an exceptional high intensity. The only two ways I can think of doing that is either cutting times or increasing the distance, which I think you alluded to. So if you could just kind of clear that up a little bit for me, and then we'll look at how it would kind of shift a little bit in season where we do have a meet every week or maybe multiple uh, meets.
1: Yeah. So, one of the things going back to what you just mentioned, which I think is really important, I look at it as the different stride links or, or requests of movement that we're asking them to concentrate on is being like gear ratios, right? So like we're in this gear, this gear, and this gear you know, and we're looking for that flywheel to spin at a certain speed, right? And that gear to be a certain size. And so that's the way that I look at it for the athletes. And and what's really cool is that when you play with it with time, you can actually figure out, well, what is their best gear? Where are they the most effective, right? And then sometimes what's really interesting is their natural stride isn't actually the most effective gear for them. And so by playing with that, and having those different zonal runs with different requests of body movement, we can find the proper gear or create specific workouts that can help them get there or change what they're doing. So I love what you were saying, because that's so very important. And people think running is just running. Well, yeah, if you're, uh, you know, some kind of dumb coach that's just getting the. A paycheck and holding a whistle and a watch. Yeah, for sure. But if you really want these athletes to maximize their abilities, you got to do what you just mentioned. So that is honorable. And I love it. Now, when we talk about the question you asked me about intensities. So when I say a 95 intensity percentage of effort, there are times that you can put together based on absolute performances. So if my athlete's PR is a 56 in the 400 meter dash, which we just had a girl run that this year and she split 55 and everything. It's like, all right, I gotta figure out how to train at that distance. So when you discount the distance, the 95% effort is really, really achievable because you're undercutting the distance. So you can stretch that out and build that special endurance, depending on the length of the run or speed reserve or, or speed maintenance when you go longer, obviously the percentages are going to. you're still saying, Hey, I want a 95% effort at this distance, but the actual velocity on the track might be slower than race pace, but it's not going to be a lot slower. You know, it's going to be pretty darn similar. And then the other thing I do within those longer runs is I try to break down in different distances, what the expected, Effort, mechanics, intensity, and thought process should be at each one of these landmarks as they move around. So if I'm going to run a 350 in practice, let's say, and I'm going to do two of them, okay, and then I might have some shorter sprints on the back end, and that's traditionally what we might do on one of those length-based days on a Monday, key performance indicator workout on a Monday that we talked about, length-based, I'm going to build it like it's a 400. So from zero to 60, they're all out. From 60 to 200, they're running tall and maintain. From 200 to 300, they're re-accelerating, recommitting around the curve. When they get to the last 50 of the 350, we tell them to emphasize the arms and driving the arms back and behind, but also keeping their stride quick. Because naturally what ends up happening when that bear shows up and your body starts to lock up and you get overloaded with all that waste product, that you can no longer buffer is you tend to, your legs disappear, you over stride, and you panic run, which means your hands get tighter and tighter and tighter and higher. And they actually don't do anything for you. So we want to cue the opposite over cue the opposite to bring back to the stride to be equilibrium. So that's the other thing that I do when we're running those lengthier runs as we're trying to mimic what, in competition activity at that distance would look like. So even if I have a 100 meter specialist, but we're running a 150, I will probably race model the 200 and do the things I want to see them do in a 200 on the 150. Again, because you're discounting the distance, you can run near the intensity for a shorter period of time, while at the same time attacking the strategic aspects of that. So that's kind of how I handle that. Now, the timing is, is hard because you're like, well, what does 95% of that mean? Well, it's real simple. I just take a 400, like if I would run a 400, let's say, which I don't do often, by the way, I usually run over or under, but if I'd run a 400 and I say, okay, you know, an athlete runs 60 flat, all right, well, then just times that by 1.05 and that gives you 95%, okay, And then that's the time that the athlete is expected to run within your practice. And you can do that with all manner of distances and measurements. But obviously, it's easier at the events they actually run to figure that out. But thankfully, there was a book put together a long time ago called Running Tracks, which helps get your timing for that in all these random distances. Unfortunately, though, that book is out of print. And it has got the wrong recoveries in it. And it doesn't go to the shorter things, Coach Curtis, that are so important for field sports, like the 40, flying 20s, 30s, and 60 yards or whatever types of runs. It doesn't have any of that shorter stuff, which is more applicable to most coaches in most sports outside of track and field. So I am actually in the process of going through and creating some norms in the shorter distances and the longer distances for a book I'm working on and doing the same thing for the weight room, which there's tons of charts on that. But again, percentages for the the bench, the squat, the deadlift, the clean, the jerk snatch, you know, and the world records in those. And then I'm also doing it for swimming. So hopefully soon, this will be a lot easier for a lot of coaches because I'm going to provide them the book to be able to put all the timing together so that 95% becomes real clear on the chart for the athletes PR for the distance.
0: That's awesome. I'll I'll be excited to get my hands on that. So I'll be excited whenever that comes out. So uh, an area I want to kind of shift to, we've kind of talked about like shorter distances here. I haven't talked a lot on this podcast about the mid distance, the 800 meter. So I'd like to talk about how you prep for the 800 before we dive into some uh, other specific topics within your methodology. So how does prep for your 800 differ in its elements from those earlier sprint based things that we were just talking about?
1: So, the 800 is really unique, and and thankfully I've been blessed to have a number of really good athletes in the 800. In the past, we have the stay record in the 4x8, and one of the things that kind of became pretty clear is that for what I have seen, and, and now full disclosure, last couple of years we haven't had the the best 800 meter squad. We just haven't. But my sprint squad's been really good, and my jump squad's been really good. So it's like you know. You have this, that's the whole point of the critical mass system is we're not throwing everybody down a funnel. We're not fitting everybody into a 30 meter, 10 meter hole. You know, we are trying to say, okay, after testing and seeing what these athletes are really successful at competitively, let's go emphasize that for them, you know, and let's make that the big emphasis. And that doesn't mean we're ignoring the other athletes in our program. We're still going to run these same systems and they're still going to get way better in those systems it's just gonna be they might not come up on your radar screen because they're not an all-state or a nationally ranked kid so for example we had a young lady who was on our uh you know our varsity four by eight this year she started out her season at like uh you know like a 310 in a time trial in the 800 and we got her all the way down to 238 in a split that's pretty good man and this wasn't a kid that was overweight or out of shape. It was literally just getting the kid competitively ready for the 800. So, like that kid's never gonna be somebody's like, Ooh, tell me what you did for them, because nobody cares, but yet they're improving the same amount. So, they do care about the kids that run 212 and 210 for females on your team or boys under two minutes, without a doubt. So, when it comes to the 800, regardless of your talent level, whether you have that 210 girl or the girl who starts out at the 310, You want to make sure that you respect the balance of the competitive energy system demands of that event. It is the closest event, I think, maybe in any time sport, swimming or um, track and field, where it's almost 50-50. 50% 50 anaerobic, 50% aerobic. Now, the cool thing is, as the athletes get better, it becomes more anaerobic. And I always say that it's an 800-meter sprint, not an 800 meter run, you know? And so what does that mean? Is that again, we talk about the critical mass system. We want to balance that training out. But now instead of it being short sprint orientated, long sprint orientated, it becomes long sprint orientated with aerobic support, right? So one of your workouts, let's say week one, and then what's so funny coach is that with the 800 people typically always screw it up because they're either a sprint biased coach and they're like, we're going to come at it by running one fifties. Well, good luck being really successful in the 800. If they decide to go from the gun all out and you've got to drag your butt around the track for two minutes all out. That's a very uncomfortable experience, especially when you've not been prepared to handle the demands of it by just running one fifties. The reverse is true, though, on the opposite. You got a lot of distance dudes who think there's like 20,000 words for tempo, you know, just like Inuits in Alaska have for like snow, right? You know, it's like it's snow to us, but to the distance, it's like, oh, it's a cruise interval. It's a tempo run. It's a lactic threshold one, whatever. It's tolerance on the distance end. So you got to make sure that you have that, but it can't be the dominant feature of the race because what if everybody decides to jog the first 600 meters of the 800 and it does become a 150 or a 250 meter kick well you've got to be prepared for that so again same philosophy with the critical mass system monday week one is probably going to be more 400 meter you know centric type of work long sprint monday of week two is going to look more like a 1600 meter runner You know, and then what happens is as you get to the last third of your season, then those workouts should become specifically 800 meter focused. So instead of doing repeat 400s or a couple repeat thousands on a Monday, now you might do split sixes or split eights, right? Or then you might run one 800 all out and then back it up. With a lactic threshold run of 15 minutes after, you know, with a, you know, again, a 20 minute recovery or 15 minute recovery in between those two activities, again, to simulate the features of the competition that they're going to have to run. And you go, well, wait a second, why would you run that one all out 800 and then wait 20 minutes and then go run a 15 minute lactic threshold run? Probably because they're going to run the four by eight, and then they're probably going to go run the mile. So they need to be prepared to do both, Right. And if it was a kid who is a more 400-meter kid moving up, then you don't do the 15-minute lactic threshold run. You would probably follow it up with some other type of long sprint after you did that initial run. So all you're doing is you're playing with the actual things that happen in competition and designing training to simulate it, but providing, like we talked about, some changing – of those workouts so that the athlete doesn't get bored or docile and the body itself doesn't get bored and adaptates. and now it's like I'm done I don't have any way to improve now and that's the thing about some coaches who do the same thing every week every day they are undermining the evolution and progress and adaptation that that athlete is yearning for psychologically but also yearning for physically and then what's really cool is if you plan these things out right, you can circle back to those original things at any time in the season you want. You just got to make sure that it makes sense and it isn't such a radical change that the athlete can't tolerate it and it messes up their performance. And I like to do those circling backs after vacations, holidays, holidays or after a peaking type of thing for a competition. Anyway, you are going to say something, Coach. Yeah, I,
0: I was just, a couple of things I've forgotten to say as we've gone through all this different stuff is like, you've talked about it multiple times, like the balance between two different weeks. And then honestly, between the entire cycle, um, you really try and promote balance uh, in the way that you build the profile because you spoke to a global approach. And, you know, a lot of the times you can feel safe by staying within the same elements, like take it to the weight room. If you were to stay in the same volume, same weight, that's actually going to be more detrimental to someone in there. They're actually going to be more likely to be hurt because they're going to continue to accumulate volume within that one section. Same thing with running. So sometimes whenever you don't build the profile out wide like that, then you leave yourself with a, with a lot of open holes uh, and a lot of places for injury actually. And like you talking about you're driving adaptation because the body's not used to what it's doing. Anybody that knows anything about athletic prep, be it speed or strength, you have to continue to throw in different variables. And one thing I wanna say before I forget this, I've, I've thought it three times as you were talking, whenever you're telling me your workout, I could be off base with this. But I feel like what you're telling me, whenever you say a workout, I really feel like you're presenting a really good constraint for your kids, for them to blossom within a certain profile. So uh, whenever you're saying workout, for you, I'm feeling more like a constraint where you're saying, okay, this is under distance, but I need at this speed. We're going to be focusing on max velocity, trying to go over speed compared to what we can probably carry for the whole event. Or we're going, uh, we're trying to attempt to go a longer distance here, but we're trying to maintain that speed. You're putting constraints in place that are driving these different adaptations that we've been speaking to us. That's something that's been poking me in the side this whole time in this conversation and I keep forgetting to say it. So that's what's been flashing in my mind as you continue to go through this system. Absolutely. And and
1: what I want them to do is I want them to de- embrace the chaos of the randomness of all of the different things they have to do. Like when people look at a hundred meter dash they're like ah, that's just the fastest person and and that's it. Yeah, it's also against all of the fastest people. So if they're not technically sound at the different phases in the chaos that they're going to face, they're not going to be as successful to reach their biological potential that they need in those situations. And so it's like, all right, look, what if a wind gust comes up? What if you know, you're racing to somebody who's six foot seven and you're five foot four. Like, how do you handle that? What if you look really good through the first 30 and then you can't, you don't have anything after it. Like those things tell me a constraint that we want to create and practice so that we can overcome that constraint and embrace the chaos of whatever comes to us to be able to handle it. Like, if you think about like the weight room, when we think about preparation for field sports, right? Like the athletes that never get hurt in a field sport are the athletes that tend to be the least linear of the athletes, the ones who are exposed to the most chaos in terms of movements and potential assignments and reactions that they have to face. So, like the best example in all of sports, I feel like, is being a defensive back in football, right? You're moving up and down, back and forth, side to side. You have different coverages, which radically change what you're doing in a football space. And they tend to be the athletes who are least likely hurt. And so it's like, well, why is that, right? Well, it's because the event, the position provides everything of the chaos that you need. But in linear sports like track and field, we have to create that chaos or what, I mean, I love it, what you just said, the constraint, okay, so that they're exposed to it. So no matter what comes, and usually it's like, well, 100's 100. You're right. But where's the long jump at? Is the long jump before or after? What's the warm-up procedure at the track meet? Are you going to run the 100 and be asked to come back immediately and run the 200? Are you running one event with prelims? Are you running four events with no prelims? Are there prelims and finals in the long or triple jump that you're doing? Are you standing over there in the high jump? So dependent upon the athletes, we owe it to them to construct, like you said, constraints, but like strategic possibilities that they need to be able to execute in the chaos that they're presented
0: with in competition.
1: Yeah, so, and love before it, we
0: before we jump to, to tempos here, what you're speaking to as well, you encounter a lot of different needs within within athletic populations. And it's just very difficult to to come out and say, okay, this is the workout. Like you you have to learn to cook. If you're going to be a successful coach, you can't just read a recipe. If you were to give me a recipe, like you said, is my kid running one event, two events, are they doing jumps as well? So you have to learn to cook yourself to to understand exactly what the needs of that athlete are going to be. And there's just a lot of needs in general, even if every single kid was running one race, because a kid might naturally have a better aerobic base. A kid might naturally be more of a creatine phosphate athlete who's a sprinter straight out of the blocks. So there's just so many different needs present within one team setting. And then as a coach, coach. You also have to learn to cook. That's kind of like the beauty of different systems, like the critical mass system. Like it gives you a setting. You talked about scaffolding earlier. Now you've got to learn how to put those pieces in there so that the structure holds. So all that's very good. Sorry to cut it off there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to tune in next week as we continue to discuss tempo training and its benefits, as well as the role of recovery and the weight room with Coach Banta. If you've never read the Sprinter's Compendium, make sure to check it out. It truly is packed to the brim with useful knowledge on track and field. Also, make sure to check out Companions of the Compendium podcast. It's one you'll want to add to your list to listen to weekly. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with all the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.